Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. with a quote from a wise woman. Also, just before I start as well, I've got a bit of a cold. I wrote this preach on hazy Sudafed this week, and so I don't know what might come out. If there's any heresy, just hold your hand up and I'll, uh, I'll just stop. Um, but yeah, so to start with, a wise woman, Lily Bollinger, I believe it's pronounced, once said, I drink wine when I'm happy, and when I'm sad, sometimes I drink it when I'm alone. When I have company, I consider it obligatory. I trifle with it if I'm not hungry, and I drink it when I am. Otherwise, I never touch it, unless I'm thirsty. And stay with me here. This is a bit like the book of Psalms. The Psalms, based in the middle of our Bibles, uh, the book of songs. And actually, whatever we may be feeling today, whether it be joy, grief, hardship, anguish, frustration, love, sorrow, celebration, or thanksgiving, we can find it all here in the book of Psalms. Whether we're happy, sad, hungry, alone, in company, there is a psalm for all of these. Someone once said to me that we should read the psalms and reread them until we can hear our own voice. Because while you might not initially find your own voice in the book of Leviticus, talking about animal sacrifices, you will without a doubt find it in the psalms. The psalms give us permission to express ourselves, to express our circumstances, our frustrations, and it also gives us affinity with others as well. It's essentially counselling with the Lord. We've got Psalm 22, 22. <clears throat> my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The psalmist cries out in anguish at abandonment, or Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. <clears throat> according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. David's cry for forgiveness or a cry of praise and worship. We've got in Psalm 103, praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Some of the Psalms as well are called to be sung congregationally, but then there are some which are a bit more personal, which are kind of a call for us as individuals. But I think it's really important that Fraser just said to dwell on the concept of just rereading Psalms until we hear our own voices saying it back to us. So today the psalm of my choosing is Psalm 121. So if you want to turn there now, I'll dive right in. It'll show up on the screen as well. So yeah, Psalm 121, a song of ascents. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. I'm just going to pray before we get stuck in. Yeah, Lord, I thank you for the book of Psalms, God. I thank you for... Yeah, the heart cries and, uh, and songs that come out of it, Lord, and that we can relate to so much of it. God, I thank you that we can see our own lives in the Psalms and our own emotions, and <clears throat> we can also see so much of you as well in it and your glory and, uh, and praise be to you, God. And I just pray that this morning you would speak through these words I've prepared, you'd speak through this Psalm that was written thousands of years ago, Lord. I thank you that you're your word is uh, living and active, and I just pray that we would experience that this morning. 
Amen. Right. So, would you have any avid, like, mountain climbers among us this morning? No one. No one. Literally, no. Okay, I am, we are on a sea. I'll give you that. Um, but growing up on a small island, myself, we had beaches and cliffs, but we didn't really have any mountains. So I'd never really experienced the sense of achievement when you walk up a mountain until I was about 11. My family and I had uh, gone to the north of England to kind of scout out whether we were going to live there or not. And a friend of ours had suggested, like, let's go up this mountain. Like, you'd be able to see how beautiful, you know, the countryside is. And it was one just on the edge of Dermotwater near Keswick, and it's called Cat Bells, random name I know, but just don't think about it. There's no cats on it, or bells. Um, and when I remember, we reached the top, and we'd arrived, and I remember this so clearly, even though it was a long time ago, being 11, that I just had the sudden overwhelming sense of like, yeah, God is real, because I can see all this, and this is insane. I was a, I'd been a Christian for a few years, I'd given my life to him, but in this moment, up that mountain, seeing firsthand for the first time this landscape that I wasn't used to in all its beauty and glory, the clear blue lake, rolling green mountains. I was just like, wow, I was just completely in awe of God's handiwork, his ability, the gravity of how big he he is. And and if you've ever climbed a mountain before, um, clearly no one here, uh, it's a very humbling experience of how small we actually are on this earth. And I think I've got a photo, which is just there. Um, that's from Cat Bells then. More recent, I didn't have a uh, digital phone when I was 11 because it was a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, basically, I could see this wonder in creation and then I got this overwhelming sense of the God that created this landscape also cares and keeps me, which just blew my mind at the age of 11. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. The Lord of the mountains, the Lord of the hills, of the whole of creation cares and keeps us. So you might have noticed that this psalm actually begins with the phrase, a song of ascents. And this one, along with Psalm 120 right through to 134, are all songs of ascent, meaning to climb or walk to the summit of a hill. And some scholars believe that they were written for the pilgrimage of worshippers going to Jerusalem and that they would sing them as they walked. Almost like a road trip playlist kind of vibe, but a long time ago. And this psalm in particular is intended to instill confidence in those making this journey. And this becomes a parable for the walker's life, basically, the journey of the believer's whole life. And that's what I want our real focus to be on today. I think the whole of this psalm is actually embodied in the first two verses. So I think verses three to eight basically reinform what verses one to two are saying. So today I want us to look into three ways in which we see the hills in our lives. So firstly, as I've touched on, we can look at the hills in wonder. How many of us here, I reckon it's probably quite a few, can relate to feeling God's presence most when we're out in nature? And it doesn't have to be a wondrous walk in the mountains or waterfalls. But for me, during lockdown, it was Lady Barn Park. And um, it did exactly that for me. That we, I would go there and I'd sit on one of the benches. And there was a piece that came from being sat in the middle of like an ecosystem, basically, with grass and the buzzing of bugs and dogs and everything around you. It just felt very peaceful. And I read a book by Andrew Wilson recently called Incomparable. And he was talking about um, our leniency often, often to describe creation as nature. But the Bible never actually talks about nature, but about creatures. Because creatures point to a creator, whereas nature just is. And God actually, he deserves all the honour and glory for his creation, rather than everything being credited to an impersonal force like nature. 
It would almost be like going around to someone's house for dinner and thinking about how delicious the food is, but never acknowledging or thanking them for the food. That would be really weird, wouldn't it? You'd kind of sit there, you'd take a bite, thinking this is the best food I've ever eaten. But I'm not going to tell Beth that, because, you know, she doesn't need it. I do need it. Um, and this should be our heart's reaction when we look at God's creation. Take, for example, the stars. According to NASA's latest data, astronomers estimate that our Milky Way alone contains more than 100 billion stars and that the universe could contain up to one septillion stars, which is, in numbers, is 24 zeros. I wrote them all out. It's a lot. And, um, yeah, at the beginning of our Bibles, at the beginning of creation, it says in one simple verse, Genesis 1, verse 16, and he also made the stars. It's a throwaway comment at the beginning of creation. One septillion stars, a throwaway comment. And I went on to read on the NASA website, because I was interested, about the definition of a star. And this is what it says. The stars are giant balls of hot gas, mostly hydrogen, with some helium and small amounts of other elements. Every star has its own life cycle, ranging from a few million to trillions of years, and its properties change as it ages. And I read that, its properties change as it ages. And I don't know about you, but the first thing that came to my mind was, oh my goodness, stars go through puberty, basically. Like, God, the God of detail, didn't just throw some stars up there and say, you know, you do your thing. But these balls of gas, thousands of years, light years away, have the properties that change as they age. They go through life cycles. If God put that much detail into something that gets a one-line comment at creation, it puts into perspective how we as humans, and Genesis 1.27 were created, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. And just like my comment about the stars should change how we perceive creation, this part should affect the way we see ourselves. If God spent so much detail in how he created the life cycle of a star, it causes us to reflect on the care and craftsmanship that went into us, made in the image of him. It's what causes David in Psalm 139 to cry out, for you created me in my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body and all the days on days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. The God that constructs galaxies lays the foundations of mountains, placed the sun in its perfect position in the sky, also knitted each one of us together in our mother's womb. And if you're not a Christian here today, potentially, the concept of us having a creator is a bit foreign. You think, well, I think you'll find my parents created me which biologically you're correct, but our creation is far more than the biology of just our parents. Our conception, whether it was out of love and tenderness or force or spontaneity or violence, doesn't inform the value of our lives, whether we have parents that cared for us or parents that were absent. Our value, our purpose, comes from our ultimate creator and father who, long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind, had settled on us as the focus of his love to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, the message. This is the God that watches over us, that keeps us, that knows us, our helper. He intimately knows each one of us. As Psalm 139 said, he knows all of our days. They're written in his book. He doesn't sleep or slumber. He doesn't let our foot slip. He doesn't tire of watching over us. The same God that made the heavens and the earth made us, is our helper. The ultimate source 
of our help comes from this authority, not politicians or parents or friends, but this God, the creator that made heaven and earth and you and me. So we can look at creation at these hills and wonder and worship. But secondly, I want us to look at on the flip side. We may often look to the hills in fear. How many of us can testify to maybe walking home late at night, potentially a longer path that is quicker, but maybe a little bit more of a risky way home? You're there clutching your keys in between your fingers and your senses are heightened. And you think, there's no one around currently. If something happens to me and I called out, who would come? Who would help me? And some commentaries think that the first verse in this passage, I lift my eyes to the hills, is an anxious one of the walker. That looking anxiously at the hills on the way to Jerusalem and wondering what's lying in wait. Potential robbers or gangs, threats as they journey through the valley. They look at their surroundings and they ask, who will help me? What struggles are lurking and where are my allies? How many of us walk through life a little bit like this? We look at the hardships, the worries, the metaphorical mountains of our lives and think, who will help me? The fear of the unknown is something I think we probably all can relate to at some point in our lives. And I've definitely known this in my own life. A few years ago, my family was going through quite a rough time of loss and family illnesses. And during this time, I realized I'd started to lean on basically an unhealthy coping mechanism. And I began to worry away the fear of the unknown. I would ease my fear by imagining the worst outcome of everything, sort of catastrophizing. And um, I began to basically think in my head, oh, this could happen. They won't make it. I'll arrive home. My house will have been broken into. And it would, it would trail and trail, and I could go on, but don't think it would be helpful for anyone here. <laughs> but I'd be soothed uh, by continuously emotionally preparing myself for the worst. Worry and fear were ruling my life. I almost saw worry a bit like um, it was actually a preach on idolatry that kind of brought it out, and I realized that I was seeing worry as an idol, that my mind would go to worry before it would go to God. And what's more, I didn't even realize I was doing this. It took that service, that meeting, for me to kind of snap out of it and realize I've put this above my trust in God. I had misplaced faith And there's a theologian called John Bloom, and he puts it like this. He says, faith in the wrong thing produces the wrong fear. And we, ultimately, we obey what we fear. History can testify to that. But the book of Proverbs often speaks about fear in the Lord. And this is a good thing. This fear in the Lord produces humility and faith and submission to God. Proverbs 16, verse 6 says, By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Fear is a good thing when it's rightly placed. It can cause us to turn away from sin, to commit things to God. But when it's wrongly placed, it can lead to turmoil. And my issue was that my eyes were fixed on the dangers of the hills instead of the creator who was sovereign over those hills. I was looking to doing it by my own means. I was looking to be my own means and source of help when actually the true source was the Lord. And I wonder if there's many of us that can relate to this as well. Where do you look for your help? Potentially there's one person that you always go to, or maybe there's an online community that you find solace in. Or maybe like me, there's a coping mechanism that you don't even realise is actually currently there. But the psalmist is so direct here. They lift their eyes and they see the trouble in front of them and they ask the question, where is my help? And then they immediately 
without pause, look beyond the current danger, beyond the current situation, and declare the truth, my help comes from the Lord. And sometimes we have to come to the end of ourselves to truly understand the magnitude of that, the magnitude of God. That walk I did up the mountain at 11 years old was actually preceded by one of those moments. And 10 minutes before I had my little epiphany, um, my brother, who had severe breathing issues at the age, was lying on the side of the mountain struggling to breathe. And as we were growing up, as a teenager, I remember he'd start a lot of the mornings by uh, like half an hour on a ventilator, basically. He'd constantly be monitoring his breathing. He struggled with severe asthma, but also whooping, whooping cough. Whooping cough, I said that wrong. <laughs> and um, I'm not a doctor. And over the years, basically, it had been really bad. And at that time, I think because there are no mountains in Guernsey, we didn't think about the fact going up a mountain would be an issue because <laughs> it's rather flat. And um, so we made it up the majority of the mountain. We were literally just before the summit, before I remember turning around and seeing him lying on the floor, struggling to breathe. And um, we all thought in this moment that this could be it. There was no one near to help. It would be very, take a long time, not a very long time, but it would take too long for a mountain rescue team to arrive. But my dad and the friend that we were walking with, they began to pray for him. And he miraculously recovered. His breathing slowed down and paced, and he was okay. In that moment on the mountain, on the hillside, we looked beyond the hill that was in front of us and called on the help of our creator. There was no doctor at hand, no hospital we could easily get to. We'd reached the end of ourselves, and we were crying out to God. In this instance, we looked beyond the trouble in front of us, beyond the hill, and to the creator of heaven and earth. And I just encourage you now to have a think about what are the mountains that are currently in your life? What are the unknowns that are causing fear? Maybe it's a difficulty at work or family conflict, or potentially you're wrestling with yourself and your own existence and purpose. I just encourage you now to pray that God would help you look beyond those hills, beyond those present struggles, and to declare the truth over them, that the one who helps you in those scenarios is the one that has dominion over them, and the one that will keep you through it. So we've explored looking at the hills of wonder and fear, and lastly, there is one hill that we can look to and find complete salvation. 2,000 years ago, but years after this psalm was written on a hill just outside Jerusalem, the hill of Calvary, also known as Skull Hill, Jesus was crucified for us. And from that hill, our ultimate help came. Within Cumbria, as I'd mentioned, there's a team of mountain rescue volunteers who were linked with the emergency services. And they specifically go out to the mountains in any weather, at any time of day, night, to rescue stranded and injured walkers. And it's all voluntary-based as well, which is just insane. And just a couple of years ago, they celebrated 50 years of saving lives on the mountains, saying that actually in the early days, their rescue missions often consisted of local farmers, probably who were like in the pub at the time, going out, getting a wooden gate, and going up the mountain to save people and bringing them down on this wooden gate. And you fast forward 50 years, now with helicopters and paramedics and doctors, they're able to save countless lives all over the region. And the team's chairman, Mark Baines, said this. He said, I get to see some of the correspondence from the people who we rescue. And you realise that for each of those people, it's a life-changing moment and one of the most significant things that has ever happened in their lives. 
The most significant thing to happen, not only in our lives, but in time itself, was God's great rescue plan, Jesus. While we were still sinners, while we were still up in that mountain, lost, confused, broken from our own doing, from going our own way, from relying on our own strength, God came and he found us. He didn't send doctors or paramedics or local farmers from the pub, but he sent his son. And what's more, his son sacrificed himself for that rescue. And this is a life-changing thing. Imagine, almost if you will, a treacherous storm and there's an injured walker stranded up on the mountain, unable to move. There's a rescuer beginning to scale the hill. He's clambering, climbing through horizontal rain that's going 50 miles per hour. Hitting against his body, he's climbing through the storm, through the clouds, and he plows on, screaming the walker's name, searching for them. Then finally, he sees them. He runs to them, he envelops them in a warm embrace, he picks them up and carries them down the mountain, bringing them home. This is exactly what Jesus did for us, except his ascent up the hill 2,000 years ago saw him beaten and bruised, not by wind and rain, but by floggings and whips, carrying not only a wooden cross on his back, but the sin of the world. All the while knowing that this was God's rescue plan. This is what would bring us home. And at the top of this hill, Salvation not just for the one, but for all, would be found. When we lift our eyes up to this hill, we see God's immense love poured out for us. That on the painful cross, Jesus took on every wrong thing we've ever done or will do and paid the price so that we may be saved. This is the helper that watches over us day and night who sent his only son to die for us, who keeps us from harm. On this hill, the price of our sins was paid. On this hill, the trajectory of our lives changed. And on this hill, the greatest outpouring of love history has known. So when you're fearful and scared and looking at the unknown hills, not knowing what lies ahead, what troubles await, I just encourage you, look away from those hills. Turn your vision to look at this hill, the hill of Calvary, the one where Christ was crucified on our behalf, the one where hope was born the one where the creator of heaven and earth helped us, saved us, and redeemed us. That is where our true help lies.